So we now go to uh, a church in a place called Sardis. And Sardis um, had once been uh, a very important place, a very important um, city. It was the capital of uh, Lydia, which was a province in Western Asia. And over its history, it had become very wealthy and uh, very important and influential. It had been ruled by the Persians, um, overtaken by the Greeks and overtaken by the Romans. Um, but nonetheless, it remained a very important city. And uh, it was a strong city, um, not just in terms of uh, its wealth, but also its fortification. Um, and it was also quite a strong Christian city as well. But over time, um, complacency crept in uh, into the city as a whole and uh, also into the church. And it was a church that was now resting on its past glory, on its past doings. And by the end of the first century, the city itself was dying, but the church within the city was dying as well. So in a way, the congregation, the people in Sardis, was the very reverse of the congregation in Smyrna. In Smyrna, the letter was about tough times and staying strong, and they were doing that. There were people in Smyrna who were dying for their faith, yet the church was alive. This is the reverse. Sardis appears to be alive, but yet it's dead. Revelation 3, verses 1 through to 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now I want to go back to verse 1 and take some time to look at that. So Cameron, if you don't mind just leaving that on the screen, that would be great. And I'm actually going to spend some time just looking at verse 1. And I want to mention that to you now so that those of you who like to look at your watches don't think in about 10 minutes' time, goodness, you're still on verse 1 and there's six more to go. <laughs> so uh, a lot of what um, God was saying to me as I was looking through this uh, is actually in verse 1. Verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And I began to think, well, why seven? Why seven? And seven's actually mentioned more than 50 times in Revelation. Maybe seven was on special that day, I'm not sure. 
But we see that referred to time and time again. It's obviously symbolic. The Bible, of course, has many symbols. The rainbow is a symbol that God gave Noah that he would never again flood the earth. Um, We see the dove descending on Jesus as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Um, We follow um, communion and we have bread and wine, symbols of the body and blood of Jesus. The cross itself, of course, a symbol of his death and resurrection. But in the Bible, numbers also can be symbolic. And um, seven, actually, in the whole Bible is mentioned over 700 times, more than any other number. Sometimes, of course, it's not in a symbolic way. It's just plain old seven, you know, a little bit more than six and not quite eight. But often when you look at the context, you realise it's something that's symbolic and the symbolism is of God. Now, last week, Jess referred to an idea of the law of first mention in the Bible. And what that is, is when something is mentioned for the first time, often its context and the way it's mentioned and referred to gives us a key to unlocking when it's mentioned in subsequent times as well. So I looked to see when seven was first mentioned in the Bible. Anyone like to make a guess? When seven, Genesis, and when? Creation, the seventh day. And so on the seventh day... Of creation, God rested. It was finished. It was complete. There was nothing more to do. Nothing had been forgotten or overlooked. Nothing still had to be done. And so seven often refers to that fullness of God, that completion of God's work. We look at the mention of seven in the Bible. Um, In the Old Testament, animals that were to be sacrificed... Um, had to be seven days old, um, complete and whole in that sense. Naaman, who was the servant of the king of Syria, had leprosy and he went to Elisha to uh, be healed. And Elisha told him to dip in the river seven times. Joshua, to take the city of Jericho, had to walk around the city once a day for seven days. And on the seventh day, walk around that city seven times for that complete and final victory. So in these instances, seven talks about some kind of completion, some divine instruction being fulfilled. In the New Testament, we read that Jesus says, forgive seven times 70. And I'd always considered that to mean, well, forgive without limit. Seven times 70 is a big number and you'd lose track of how many times you're forgiven, so you just keep on forgiving. And perhaps that's true. But also, if you think forgive until each matter is complete. That there's nothing more that is holding you about that. So that completion of God, that seven fulfilment of God. So in Revelation, seven represents God's completeness. The fact that there's seven churches talks about the complete or the whole body of Christ. So that was the first thing that came to me. Why seven? Talking about God's fullness and his completeness. And then as I read on in that verse, it talked about seven spirits of God or the sevenfold spirit of God. Not that there are seven individuals, but a spirit of God with seven parts. And um, there's a verse in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through to 4, that talks about the prophecy over Jesus. And who Jesus will be. And in verse 2 it says, The Spirit of God, that's one, 
will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord. So seven aspects of God's spirit would rest on Jesus. And so that tells us that Jesus has the completeness of the spirit of God resting on him. God's totality will rest on Jesus. But the verse continues. It says, he, this is Jesus, will delight in obeying God. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will judge with righteousness. And two things came out of that to me. First, that there's that completeness of Jesus, of God resting on Jesus. And second is, you can't fill Jesus. You can't fill Jesus. He has the fullness of the Spirit. He has wisdom, understanding, knowledge. And he's not fooled by appearances and won't judge by appearances or what he hears, but on righteousness. So in terms of the church of Sardis, their past reputation, their past glory and successes, whatever they may have been, count for nothing. You can't hide the truth of how things are going right now. The seven stars are referred to in that first verse as well. And I thought, well, what are the seven stars? That's actually explained in Revelation chapter 1. So we've been starting looking at the churches from chapter 2. If you go back to chapter 1, you can read a bit more about uh, some things that explain the lead up to that. But the seven stars represent seven angels or messengers of the church. Um, some authors say that that indicates perhaps there's a guardian angel over every church. I don't know whether that's the case or not. It's a lovely thought though, isn't it? I hope he's having a good time this morning too. If he's been able to get into church, of course. <laughs> it was open for a reason. <laughs> Others say it's uh, symbolic of those who have authority over the church. But either way we find that Jesus is holding those seven stars in his hands. He has the authorities of the church in the palm of his hand. He has authority over the authorities. So bringing all of that together, the symbolism of seven, the seven-fold spirit of God, the seven stars, a paraphrase of the first verse might be something like this. I have the fullness of God upon me. You can fool others, but you can't fool me. I see right through you and I have full authority over you. I know exactly how it is with you. You appear alive, but you are dead. Now, they're quite confronting words. They get straight to the point, don't they? Yes, God is love, but sometimes we need a loving kick in the backside, don't we? A bit of a shake-up. Or we can become complacent and wither and die. And so this letter is a call to action for the church inside us and a call to action for us as well. We're living in a battle zone and we have a mission from God, the church as a whole, but also us as individual members of that church. We can't use what was mighty and empowering in our lives some time ago to continue to fuel us now. You run low, you run out of fuel. That means you're either going nowhere or, as has been said before, 
you're going downhill. Remember that church program we did all those years ago, that wonderful church service we had a couple of years ago, and that money that we raised and the outreach that we did and how we gave to the poor and how we served the community and how, as a church, we felt we were all growing in a special place. Those were good times, weren't they? It won't keep us going for long. It won't keep us going for long. In my early days of playing soccer, there was a goalkeeper on our team. I've been thinking all week how I can say this. There's no polite way. He was big boy. He was very overweight. And, you know, a goalkeeper has to be nimble and agile and dive and jump and all those sort of things. He couldn't do any of those things. But he was there and he was willing and he did what he could. But he would often say, I used to be a rep goalkeeper, you know. Okay. <laughs> I don't see that, but you're telling me that's the case. I don't expect you're lying. And he'd say that week on week, oh, I used to be a rep goalkeeper. Oh, I used to be a rep goalkeeper. And you know what? It didn't cut it for those times. He may have used to have been the rep goalkeeper, but that certainly wasn't what we saw now. Past reputations, we can't rest on them. We need to stay fresh and new in God. Give us today our daily bread, not yesterday's or last week's. In the parable of the sower, Jesus talks about a man who was scattering seeds in the field and how each of those seeds was growing. Some seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds sprouted quickly. Remember that time we were growing so much? We sprouted and we knew and we were getting taller and we were green and we had leaves on us. They were good times, weren't they? But the plants wilted under the hot sun. They didn't have deep roots. They died. In Revelation, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. The parable of the sower concludes... Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. A bit freaky, isn't it? (laughs) So the people of Sardis needed a wake-up call. They were relying on their past reputation. They may have been fooling themselves and each other and their community, but they weren't fooling God. The previous letters that we've looked at from Revelation follow a similar kind of pattern. It's a bit like a school teacher writing a school report or a comment on a child. You start with a positive, then you put in the area for challenge, improvement, whatever it might be, and you finish with a positive. Well, the letter doesn't follow that formula. Verse 1, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. There is no, this is what I'm pleased, this is what I see. However... This is just straight up, verse 1, you guys are dead. They're being held up to the light and called to account, and it's not good. But it's interesting, isn't it, that a lot of the other churches had to stand strong against external persecution or be wise and discern what's happening internally. And often that kind of opposition jolts people into action. Spurs them to fight. They want to survive, overcome, be victorious and strengthen what they have. 
But inside us, it wasn't any kind of external opposition. It wasn't even any kind of ungodly infiltration creeping into the church. They'd overcome apathy. But who cares? That's the thing with apathy, isn't it? Indifference and self-satisfaction was draining the life. The heartbeat they once had was now just um, dying and uh, being in danger of having no pulse at all. So verse 1 doesn't paint a particularly good picture of this church. Verse 2 says to wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. So there's hope. There's hope. Even though Jesus is saying to the church, you look like you're alive but you're dead, there is hope. And that's the good news of Jesus, isn't it? That no matter where we are, what situation we're going through, how difficult life is, whether we feel like we're almost dead in him, we can be alive. There is hope. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. And that word unfinished really stood out to me as well. If number seven's about God's fullness and totality and completeness and perfection, and here God's saying there's some unfinished business to do, uh, to do there. So God's wanting to do a number seven on them to make them finished and complete. So there is that glimmer of hope. They're not just being cast aside or given up on. It's the same for you and it's for me. If we have those times, God is not going to give up on us. So verse 2 specifically mentions deeds that are unfinished. If the people of Sardis were to strengthen the little that remained, they had to do something. They had to do something. But I want to pause for a moment and be absolutely clear of what I mean when I say they had to do something. I don't mean they had to create another church program or an event. Because you recall in the letter to Ephesians that they were doing lots of good things, but they'd lost their first love for Jesus. So being busy and doing things isn't the solution for complacency. Yes, it gets people up and moving, but it doesn't deal with the heart of the matter. A church can be busy but not alive in Christ. A Christian can be busy, but not alive in Christ. You and I can be busy, but not alive in Christ. So the call to action, this wake-up call, doesn't equal add something more to the church calendar. It's not about being hard-working for God, but working hard at being with God. Did you get that? It's not about being hard working for God, but working hard at being with God. And I think they were the deeds that were unfinished. It wasn't an event or an activity or a thing, but what was unfinished was the fullness and completeness of God in their lives. They thought they'd made it. On the scale of naught to seven, they thought they'd got to seven, but that's not where they were. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 12, there's a warning and hope. First, the warning. 
the prophet Ezekiel writes, if someone who is righteous disobeys, that person's former righteousness will count for nothing. And that describes the people of Sardis really well. Former righteousness, they're disobedient by being apathetic and it doesn't count for anything. And now the promise in Ezekiel 33.12. And if someone who is wicked repents, that person's former wickedness will not bring condemnation. So what counts for God is where you are at with him today. Where you are at with him today. Not where you were yesterday or weeks or months or years before but where you're at with him right now. The Christian life isn't a set and forget affair, but it requires constant diligence and daily devotion to God. I don't believe that we have a complacent church. I don't believe that at all. Do we have complacent individuals in the church? Well, that's for you to decide. That's for you to think about But how, if you're feeling that parts of you are withering and almost dying, can you strengthen what remains and continue to find fullness in God? How can you do that? Verse 2 says, wake up, strengthen what remains. Well, this is how you can do it. There are two key verses. In verse 2 it says, wake up. That's the first thing. If you're feeling like your Christian life is complacent and withering and dying, well, wake up. Simple as that. Simple as that. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's about stop being careless and complacent about your heart's condition towards God. In Galatians chapter 2.19, It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. You have to allow that new life in Christ to flow through your veins and keep your heart alive in him. Twice in the New Testament, Jesus was called to wake up people who had died. Once there was a man who came, um, his daughter um, was unwell, and they called Jesus to come and pray with the daughter and heal him, heal her. But by the time Jesus got there, the young girl had died. And the people came and said to Jesus, well, I'm sorry, she's she's already dead. And she was. But Jesus said, no, she's just sleeping. I'm going to go and wake her up. And he went in, took the dead girl by the hand. She came to life. She rose and got up off the bed. On another occasion, Jesus' good friend Lazarus was unwell. And a message came to Jesus Your good friend Lazarus is unwell. Come and pray for him. Jesus didn't leave immediately. and It was some days until he got there. And when he got there, Lazarus' sister, Mary and Martha, were weeping and said, Jesus, if you'd only been here earlier, he's died. He's died. And Jesus says again, no, he's just sleeping. I said, no, no, he's died. That didn't seem to be an obstacle for Jesus. He went to the tomb, called for Lazarus, who came walking out, wrapped in his uh, burial clothes. 
If Jesus can raise people from the dead, he can certainly raise those who are asleep, who need that wake-up call. But the challenge for a complacent church or complacent individuals is that they have to get into action. When Jesus brought that young girl back to life, she got up from the bed. She didn't just lie on the bed and say, oh, thanks, that's so much better. She got up off the bed. When he brought Lazarus back to life, he stood at the tomb and he called, come out. Lazarus woke up from his death, <laughs> came out of the tomb. He had to walk out of the tomb. And that couldn't have been difficult, uh, hard, rather, with bandages all around him. He had to do something. See, complacency isn't one of those infirmities that will go away on its own. Jesus calls us to wake up. He'll take our hand, but we have to get up and walk. So if you're a Christian and you feel you've reached the stage of complacency in your life, you will have to act. It won't improve while you continue on in the same way. You've got to open up that dusty old Bible. Get up a little bit earlier or stay up a little bit later. Have some time with God to read, to pray. Start a prayer journal. Make a change to your daily routine. But in some small way, you have to act. The second thing that can help strengthen the little that remains, we find that in verse 3. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Three key words in that verse. Remember, hold and repent. Remember what you've received and heard. So the people of Sardis had heard the good news of Jesus. And they had initially responded. And we can assume that because they are now relying on their reputation of past things, things in the past must have been pretty good. There must have been a very powerful, uh, engaging church within the community. So Jesus is saying, think back to what you heard initially. Not in order to recreate the past glories, but in order to renew the calling that's on your life. You think back to when you first responded to Jesus. What was it that stirred in you that made you want to respond? Whether that was in the privacy of your own bedroom or in a church meeting or in a Bible study group or someone's house or on the beach or wherever it might have been. When you suddenly realise, God, you're there. You love me. I want to respond to that. A revelation of God came to you. God, you better fill that empty hole in my heart. Think, what was that? What was that? Well, that hasn't changed. Whatever made you respond to him initially is still there. And while you can't go back to those days, you can take what happened then and allow God to renew you and to give you a new sense of calling and purpose. So remembering what you've received and what you heard. Hold it fast. Don't give up. What the Bible is saying is even though that heartbeat is getting weaker and weaker and weaker, don't give up. Don't give up. 
in Philippians, the Bible tells us, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Number seven, will carry it on to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. If you hang on to the little that you have, if you wake up, get moving, God can strengthen what's there. And the other key word in that verse was repent. And I found that really interesting, that the people of Sardis are being called to repent. Now, have they done something wrong? Well, they haven't done anything. That's the problem. They're just relying on that past reputation and now just resting on that. So they haven't hurt anyone they haven't offended anyone they just haven't anything but that must be wrong because God is saying you need to repent of that and we think often we have to repent of things we have done wrong well they've just been wallowing in whatever life has for them and God's saying repent of that to do nothing is to do the wrong thing And isn't it interesting that uh, you might say, well, these people can do those things. It's great that this person can be a worship leading or speaking or doing whatever and so forth. I just won't be part of any of that. Is God saying, well, actually, that's the wrong thing. I need you to be growing and making sure your life is being complete. When we talk about repenting and sin and turning around the verse that comes to mind is from Isaiah chapter 118 though your sins are as scarlet they'll be whiter than snow and that leads us on to the fourth verse of this passage yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes there's no stain upon them they will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy Do you know, if we're going to walk with God dressed in white and be called worthy, we have to daily allow our lives to be led by the complete, the full spirit of God. Now that leading isn't always going to be to the nearest comfy place where we can sit and watch the world go by. We'll be called to be coming closer to God. And that's what I want. I want to be seen as a person who's righteous before God and I want to walk with him but it won't happen if my life is complacent. I wonder how things turned out for the church in Sardis. I wonder if this wake-up call that they got really spurred them into action. I wonder if they worked to complete their lives in Jesus and uh, forgot the past successes and glories, but uh, found themselves new in him. I don't know, but don't die wondering about yourself. If you're feeling that your Christian life is complacent or grinding to a halt or slow or it's just not alive or it's losing that pulse, then wake up, wake up. Do you know that the light from the sun takes 8 minutes and 20 seconds to reach the earth? That means... If the sun was to suddenly burn out now, we would look in the sky and say, wow, it's a bright sunny day for 8 minutes and 20 seconds. Alpha Centauri, our nearest star, is further away 
and it takes uh, sorry and sorry it takes four years for light to reach from Alpha Centauri. So you could get out your telescope, find Alpha Centauri, look at it, and it died four years ago. But you're still looking at the light for another four years. Some stars in the sky take tens of thousands of years for their light to reach us, and they may not exist anymore. Don't be like that as a Christian, where the appearance and the reputation that you have is bright and alight, but really that flame for Jesus died within a long, long time ago. Let's not be a dead star. Let's be one that continues to burn bright and complete in him. I challenge you to think about the past 12 months. 12 months just seemed like a good time. Maybe I should have said seven months. <laughs> 12 months, it's out there. Don't think about the things that you have done for God, the things you have done for this church. They're all important. I don't mean to push them aside. They're important things. But think about how you've grown on that scale from naught to seven, the completeness of God in the past 12 months. If you feel like you've been inching up that scale, that you have a deeper, a richer, a more full, a more complete relationship with Jesus, I think that's the thing to judge it by. Now, we'll never get to seven until we're in the face of God. He's the one who's complete and full. But if your Christian life is all busy, 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 and there's that reputation around you because you're so busy that you are alive, but you know within your heart that you're no closer to God than you were 12 months ago, then maybe you need to stop and give that some thought as well. Remembering that God wants to bring us into that fullness and that completeness. Let's pray. God, I thank you that within you we find completeness, perfection, fullness, totality, all the things that we desire. Father, I pray that we'll never be guilty of living on reputation and past glories and successes, but really allowing our heart for you to wither and die. Lord, I thank you that you give us a wake-up call, but you give us hope that you can strengthen within us the little that may remain. Father, I pray for your protection over this church at North Lakes, that it may never be guilty of being complacent. Father, I pray for the church leaders, that they will always be close to you, will always seek you on a daily basis to see what is now for this church, what is current and new and fresh. Father, we pray that this will be a place where people are drawn into your presence for eternity. May we be bright shining lights that burn from within with the flame of the Holy Spirit. Amen.